So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. As I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate wintertime. As a child, I always was so sad to see summer end and winter approach. The thought of having to stay inside was nearly unbearable to me. But the older I've gotten, the more I look forward to winter. Not only do bugs go back into hiding during that time and everything I'm allergic to dies, but winter comes with so many beautiful things. And two of my favorite things are Christmas and snow. Something magical happens every time it snows. The world turns quiet and time slows down. As the snow lays, the world just stops and watches. Snow has the ability to turn the ordinary into the extraordinary. But nothing beats Christmas. The anticipation and excitement in the weeks that lead up to this holiday have been feelings that have followed me my entire life. Christmas has never been about receiving gifts for me. It's always been about the sense of giving, love, and grace. Tom Barker said, Some Christmas tree ornaments do a lot more than glitter and glow. They represent a gift of love given a long time ago. And how true is that? As Anthony and I unwrap our Christmas ornaments every year, I'm taken back to so many special trips we had together. I remember picking out our ornament for our first tree on our honeymoon to Disney World. It lets me remember our many trips to Mammoth Cave in Washington, D.C. But most of all, I love the family members we remember as we hang up ornaments. I have a special green pickle ornament my aunt got me when I was really little that hangs at the very top of the Christmas tree where all the special ornaments hang. And every year, I have to place it there. Every year, it reminds me of her sweet smile, her love for books, and her giving heart. Anthony has a bear that he painted with his mom that reminds him of simpler times and always brings some amusing stories up when we hang that ornament on the tree. My mom bought me a snowflake ornament that played Christmas carols when you pushed a button on the back. I carried that ornament year-round for many years of my toddler life. Even now that the batteries died, I can still hear those carols play when I hang the snowflake on my tree. But just as many happy memories fill my heart as we hang ornaments on the tree each year, my heart also breaks just a little. I love my pickle ornament and the ornaments that were our grandparents, but it makes me sad that my aunt and some of our grandparents aren't here to celebrate Christmas with us. It makes me sad to hang the ornament on our tree that we got for each of our animals because some of them have passed over the rainbow bridge. We got a memorial ornament for the baby we lost, and I cry every time I hang it up thinking of all the things that could have been. Through the joy of Christmas and the peace of snow, there are also times of heartbreak that shine through. As snow covers the ground, it can also cover clues or, in some cases, bodies for days and weeks at a time. And while most families are still celebrating Christmas, some families are wondering where their family members could be. As the snow falls, it brings more questions to mind like when or if the people they love may return home. And as they're packing up their Christmas tree, there are no smiles that accompany the ornaments that they remove, only tears as they think of their daughters lost in the cold and the snow. This is the story of the Grimes sisters. Welcome to Coffee in Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee in Cases Podcast and to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. 
because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. So entirely by accident, Allison, this week's case is somewhat similar to the last case that we did because it took place in the 50s. And last week we talked about our love for Christmas. Yes, and of Christmas carols. Yeah, and this story takes place just a couple days before Christmas. So unintentionally, there's sort of a connection between this episode and The Boy in the Box. Oh, okay. So back in the Elvis days. Yeah, and he plays a big role in this story as well. Elvis does? Well, look at that. So I feel like in today's world, we're almost as bad as it sounds like immune to hearing or seeing missing children on TV or, you know, podcasts or radios. Like it's like mm-hmm. a almost a weekly thing on the nightly news. And we watch like entire fictional TV shows. Considering the fact that I'm a member of like 60 different true crime groups, <laughs> my Facebook feed is inundated with missing people. Right. And I feel yeah. like, yeah, like you said, it's just, you know, we watch TV shows about people that have gone missing, both fictional and nonfictional. We listen to it on podcasts. We watch it on the news. Like, I just feel like it's so much a part of our culture, but it wasn't like that in 1956. Mm-hmm. Um, serial killers, missing children, murders weren't something that was talked about or heard of every day. So when two young girls, ages 15 and 12, went missing on December 28th of 1956 after seeing the Elvis Presley movie Love Me Tender no fewer than 11 times. Oh, my gosh. Chicago was <laughs> Yeah. So they were in love. Yes. They had yeah, the Elvis so, fever. I don't know what, the, what it was called, if it was called the Elvis fever, but I'm imagining that that's what it was called. I feel like it probably was. And they really did have... Like, they were in love with him. They were even members of the Elvis Presley fan club. (laughs) I love that. Do you remember back in the days? Oh, my gosh. I would buy, like, Teen Bop in the grocery store. And I would write to the fan clubs. Like, it would have, like, fan club addresses. And I would write letters. Well, true story. Okay. So, basically, when I was telling Anthony about this story, he laughed and said that, my mom was president of the Elvis Presley fan club because she's obsessed with Elvis, but um, true story. So my cousins and I love the Backstreet Boys. I'm sure you all know this. And we joined the Backstreet Boys fan club because their fans get first dibs on tickets. And that's how we got our front row tickets the last time we saw oh, them. Oh my goodness. The so, perks. the perks of fan club membership. And listen, if we ever get a famous musician to listen to our podcast, they need to bring back the fan clubs. Yes. I'm serious. And the posters in the Team Bop magazine. Maybe then our students would actually learn how to capitalize their I pronouns. <gasps> Maybe that's who they pick who gets in the front row. Who uses correct punctuation yes. and capitalization. Yes. Listen, help us out. <laughs> So the girls in our story today, Barbara was 15 and Patricia was 12. They were actually sisters, but not like sisters that we think or that at least I think about. Like, I always picture sisters at that age as like arguing and basically hating each other. And Mm -hmm. they were more like best friends than they were sisters. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, they were actually described in a lot of articles as inseparable. Um, mainly because they had the love for Elvis Presley. So that kind of (laughs) united them in sisterly love. (laughs) And like I said, Barbara and Patricia loved Elvis, who was age 21 in 1956, because I had to Google it because I was trying to figure out how old he was when my mother would have been a fan. So wait, Um, so he wasn't that much older than Barbara. Right. Like six years older. Yeah. Yeah. So not it's not weird. It's fine. So she probably thought it was attainable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but because they loved him so much, by December 28th, they had seen the movie Love Me Tender nine times. And on that day, the two decided it just, 
nine times just wasn't enough. <laughs> and they had to see the double feature playing at the Brighton Park movie theater. Oh my gosh. So they had to see so it. They had times. to make it 11. Yeah. Lucky 11. <laughs> <laughs> so they take their $2.50 that's in their pocket. They leave the house around 7.30 p.m. and go about the one and a half miles from their home in McKinley Park to the movie theater. And they, like, promised their mom they would be home before midnight before they leave. And, like, we don't know if they walked or if they rode the bus there. But we do know that they arrived to the movie theater excited to see Love Me Tender, which I read. Obviously, I've never seen Love Me Tender because I haven't either. I've I'm not I don't think I've watched any Elvis movies but I, I read I read he dies and love me tender I could be wrong so I can only imagine like all of these people that are like obsessed with him and then he dies at the end of this oh movie it has I would to be, be heartbreaking so yeah I would probably cry and I'm sure they did <laughs> <laughs> so like we like I said we know Barbara and Patricia arrive at the movie theater we have several reliable sources and eyewitnesses that later recall to police seeing both of them alive and happy at the movies well um, now can i ask a question yeah is this one of those like could they be remembering it from one of the other nine times that they saw them at the movie or because this was like this double feature was like in the park maybe it was a new place and so we do know that they were there well i think just some of the accounts were so specific that okay like they know we it's know they're there day. yeah because okay. they actually had a friend named dorothy that would inform investigators later on that she was in the row behind barbara and patricia with her own little sister watching the movie and she says that they left at intermission of this double feature around like 9 30 and she saw the grime sisters I'm waiting in line to purchase the most delicious movie theater snack, popcorn. Oh, 100%. Allison brings her own popcorn to I movies. Do. Listen, don't so tell my secrets, little, Maggie. There's her <laughs> little rebel thing. <laughs> I know. That's about the only rule breaking I do. Um, and I have learned, I've mastered it. It tastes just like the movie theater. Well, I'm going to need you to cost, tell me. You know, $20. I'm going to need you to tell me how to do that because we bought a popcorn oh. maker. And, like, I just can't get it down. I don't oh, know if totally I'm buying the wrong the thing. Yeah, you need to. I'll show you what you need. <laughs> so, Dorothy <laughs> says the girls are in good spirits as she walks out of the movie theater. And, like, you know, they're in line to get their popcorn. And everything is good with the world. Okay. So, obviously, the Grimes sisters do stay for the second showing. Like, of they course. had, you know, they had even put like 50 cents in like a zipper compartment of um, Barbara's wallet so that they could purchase the ticket for the second showing and not accidentally spend it at the snack counter. Right. Which, understandable as well. Right. Everything, like you said, everything's expensive. It's $10 for a pop. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but staying for the second showing of Love Me Tender meant that the sisters should have arrived home around like 11 45 so about 15 minutes before their midnight curfew um mm -hmm. but the girls don't show up at midnight mm. and, and their mom loretta is like you know i'm not gonna overreact i'm sure they probably just were you know chatting with friends and they missed the bus and they'll get on the next one home. So mm -hmm. she's like being rational. She sends their older sister, Teresa, and their older brother, Joey, um, to the bus stop that was near their house to wait to see if, like, the girls get off. Um, okay. So, again, she's just trying to yeah. stay calm. Mm-hmm. But while they're there, three buses stop at the bus stop, and Barbara and Patricia got off neither of those buses and so by this point the siblings are like okay like right. they're obviously not on the bus like we're going home i'm not waiting here all night bye right yeah because if they miss the first one they would have gotten on the second one if they miss that one then yeah, yeah. then i feel like any older sibling is going to be like yeah i'm not waiting here on you all night like i have a life i'm leaving like you can walk mm -hmm. home alone mm -hmm. so 
in the meantime, Loretta actually called some of the friends of the girls just to say, like, see, did they ride home with someone? You know, something like that. But no one has seen them since leaving the movie theater. And they didn't come home on the bus. So in the early morning of December 29th, around 2.15 a.m., Loretta called the Chicago Police Department to file a missing persons report on Barbara and Patricia Grimes. Gosh. Yeah, because surely one of the friends. Right. I wish I knew what Dorothy saw, like, after the second showing. Like, did she see them leave? Did she... Did they leave after the first one? So we do have, um, like, a possible timeline that we're going to talk about. Okay. Here in just a little bit that may answer that question. Okay. So as I kind of alluded to earlier in the episode, nothing like this had really happened in the Grimes sisters area before. So the town was like almost brought to its knees when news of the missing teen spread. Because a case like this was so unheard of, though, many theorized, of course, the first thing that they're going to go to is that the run girls away. ran away. Yeah. And it's so uh, frustrating. I know. Even back then, apparently. Yeah. And despite the girls, like, parents denying this theory, stating there's no way that the two of them would have just, like, up and ran away, the police do not pursue any leads in or many leads, I should say, in the Grimes sisters case until about one week had passed since they were last seen or heard from. And we know the first 48 hours are uh, the golden. Yeah. And that's long since gone. Yeah. And I feel like especially when technology was so limited, there were no, like, surveillance footage from the right. movie theater parking lot that they could go back and look at. Like, they're relying on eyewitness accounts, and you can forget a lot of things in a week. I forget a lot uh, of things in, like, 15 minutes, so. That's what I was getting ready to say. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you, I could be like, we need to go into the, what's the word? The kitchen. Yep, that yeah. would be the word. <laughs> like, I can't even remember. That's where yeah. my brain is right now. So, yeah, a week ago. Mm -mm. Yeah, Anthony no. told me that I need to make remembering things my New Year's resolution. <laughs> like, he told me that yet, literally yesterday. He was like, that needs to be your New Year's resolution, is to have a better memory. I was like, okay. Oh That's so funny. So, and I know this is frowned upon, but actually most of the sources in Wikipedia were really great sources. They were like... um books that have been written and things like that so I actually referenced a lot of like we tell our kids Wikipedia can be a jumping point you can look there for the sources that they used and then you need to use the sources they talk about yeah um, that's what I was telling my kids too which is what I did because they had a lot of sources that I was unable to find like online until I used like the hyperlinks that they had mm-hmm and one of the sources that they cited said that the disappearance of the Grimes sisters sparked one of the largest missing persons cases in the history of Cook County. So the county that the girls were from. Which is Chicago, right? So that's... Yes. All right. So anyways, a citywide search um, is initiated for the girls. Hundreds of police officers are assigned full time to like searching for the Grimes sisters. Which I feel like, okay, it wasn't quick, you know. Right, but like, once they got on the train, it kind of moved yeah. quickly. Yeah. yeah, once they get mobilized, that's I feel like that's quite a few officers looking. Yeah, and I've read that police conducted, like, door-to-door -door canvassing throughout Brighton Park. Um, they looked through, like, canals and rivers. They passed out 15,000 flyers to local homes. Um, some churches in town offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of the girls. Which, there if $2.50 like, gets you a doubleheader and popcorn, $1,000 was a lot. Exactly, Yeah. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. 
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And what's crazy to me is the next thing that I read was that 300,000 people, this was according to this site, this source in Wikipedia, were questioned about this case with 2,000 individuals subjected to serious interrogations pertaining (gasps) to potential involvement. Jeez. Part of me doesn't know, like, well, part of me doesn't know, like, is that impressive for police efforts or does that mean they really just have no idea, like, where to Um, start? So they're questioning everyone and their mother, literally. I kind of get that impression because I was thinking, like, how many people were at this doubleheader of Elvis? I mean, obviously, he was super popular, so probably a lot. Plus any potential people who were on buses. Yeah. And it doesn't help, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. There are, like... So many, like, apparent sightings of these two that it's, like, a little ridiculous. So maybe that was also some of it. Yeah. But despite police efforts and extensive media involvement, little to no headway is made in the Grimes sisters' disappearance. Um, Several people would tell police that the sisters got into a Mercury-modeled car with a young man who looked very much like Elvis Presley. Um, (gasps) But nothing, like, really concrete kind of happens. And I actually read in several sources that, like, Elvis himself got word of these two devoted fans who were missing, and he made a public plea for (gasps) them to come home. Oh, Yeah. If he really did that, then that I really like that. And that was in several things that I read. Like, I'm talking like A&E, History Channel, like okay. verified sources. So I'm assuming right. that that actually happened. I could totally see them getting into a car with a boy who looked like Elvis, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I was 12, okay, I'm picturing me at 12, mm-hmm. and somebody that looked like Brian Literal or Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys Rolled up in a car after I've watched the BSB movie at the local Pikeville movie theater, the Riverville (laughs) 10 Cinema. I probably would have been like, I'm getting in the car with Nick Carter. (laughs) Fangirling hard. We're getting married like I always thought we were going to. (laughs) He loves me. I always knew he loved me. (laughs) So... I mean, I could see that as a like a twelve year old getting yeah. in a car with their lookalike. I could too. But like I said, there are so many apparent sightings of the girls over the next several days to police, and I believe that it's like these quote unquote sightings that made police initially buy into the runaway theory, because most of them just seem like kind of everyday things that people would do. None of them, or not many of them, were like. I saw them in distress, pushing away a strange man, crying, yelling for help. It's like, I saw them walking down the street on Archer Avenue, like just normal, everyday things. So there were several unconfirmed sightings of the sisters boarding a Chicago Transit Authority bus on Archer Avenue, like heading east into the city after the movie. One of the people who apparently saw the sisters on this bus included the bus driver himself. Oh. And according to several articles I read, it appears the girls may have boarded the bus at West Avenue or Western Avenue at approximately like 11.05 p.m. So that makes me think like they may have left the movie a little early or like literally right when it ended. Because I know like... It probably Credits does take, take on, a while. Yeah, and like if you're on public transportation, it probably has a lot of stops. So it may take a while to get to like your bus stop. So maybe them arriving at 11.45 and the movie ending at 11 makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I'm not really sure about like, you know, the time it would take to get from the bus to their house. Okay. 
What's crazy is I read that this stop was just about halfway between the girls' home and the movie theater. But according to the History Channel, nobody ever saw the sisters get off the bus at any of its stops. So this is why we say that it's unconfirmed sightings because right. we can't, can't say definitively. Yeah, you can't vanish into thin air. Right. Like you have to get off the bus at some point. But it could just be mm-hmm. maybe a lot of people got off the bus at one time and they just were kind of lost in the crowd. Yeah. Would their stop have been a popular stop? Or was theirs just like residential neighborhood? So that I didn't look at to see if they lived just like kind of in like a residentially area. Mm-hmm. But I'm assuming if a, it was a possibility that they walked to the movie theater that it couldn't have been like too residential yeah right like well because i was thinking you know if there were a lot of people who got off then maybe they did get off at their stop they just didn't make it home from there right and that could be a possibility like because i'm assuming it's not like you know from your house to go to the movie tavern like it's not that far you know like i couldn't walk walk. i mean you could walk that but it would be like you would arrive the next day (laughs) yeah yeah exactly you'd have to leave today for tomorrow's six o'clock showing (laughs) yeah i'll just kidnap one of the horses next door i'll ride it there (laughs) yeah (laughs) bareback that's all right all right um we do have a man named roger menard that would later inform investigators that he attended the same december 28th showing of love me tender and that he also sat behind barbara and patricia grimes like close to where dorothy so the first girl was Mm -hmm. with her sister and roger said he left the movie theater about one minute before the sisters so that's why it makes me believe that they did stay for the entire second showing because it would be weird that multiple people would leave early yeah he reported a late model Buick stopping alongside the girls and he says the girls like hesitated for a second but then kept on walking. And he says again that just past 42nd Street, a black Mercury occupied by two teenage boys pulled alongside the girls. So he says this time they kind of stop. They're talking to the people in the car. They're giggling, but they still keep walking toward home. Didn't the other person report a Mercury? Yeah, so there are actually several people that reported seeing a Mercury there because remember that's with the like Elvis lookalike was driving. Right. And so he, Roger, is also saying that he was behind the girls walking home and definitely saw them stop and speak to somebody in a Mercury. Hmm. Also, two teenage boys named Ed and Earl, which like, what good names for friends ed and earl yeah. <laughs> informed investigators that while they were driving through mckinley park at about eleven thirty on the 28th they see the sisters on 35th street and they report to police officers that like the girls seem fine like they're like jumping out of doorways at one another and just like giggling they don't seem scared or anxious like everything is just fine uh, you know why i don't believe this why because they have a curfew and i mm-hmm. feel like at eleven thirty, that's getting pretty close to their curfew and if their parents were anything like mine i'd be nervous about not getting back in time and so i'm not sure about this whole like basically wasting time Right, but remember, their house is only, like, a mile and a half away from the movie theater. So, it's not like they have a huge amount of time, or, like, a huge distance to walk in a short amount of time. They had almost, like, an hour after the movie. I guess I'm gauging walking speed based on my own, which is be... That's true. That would be pretty slow. (laughs) (laughs) So, later on... A security guard named Jack Franklin would tell investigators that, like, in the early morning of the 29th, he, about, like, 12 hours since the girl supposedly left the movie theater, that he would offer directions to two girls 
who matched descriptions of the Grimes sister. And like he says, so I don't remember which story or case this was, but I always think about this. The dude that had the like ferret on his shoulder. Who was that? That was uh, Pamela Ray. Yeah. I always think about this case because we talked about like how that's so like almost unforgettable. Mm-hmm. You know? And he says the only reason that like he even is because they were both extremely rude to him like in this exchange so he says they look lost he tries to give them directions and they're really rude and that kind of makes him remember this encounter with them on the same date of Jack's alleged sighting of Barbara and Patricia, a friend of Barbara's named Judy, reported that she'd seen the sisters at about 2.30 p.m. walking westward on Archer Avenue. So again, like, these are all, like, sightings that they're just doing normal things, like asking for directions, walking on Archer Avenue, like, nothing super bizarre. Yeah, but that's almost what makes it so odd. Right, because it's so normal. Yeah. Yeah. Another sighting is a restaurant worker reported seeing the girls on the early morning of the 30th. So this is like two days missing at this point. Mm -hmm. He said that they were in the company of a man and that one of the girls acted maybe sickly or drunk, but they needed assistance walking. So this is on the 30th. A hotel clerk also stated that the girls briefly stayed at his hotel. There was another hotel that claimed that they refused service to the girls, like refused to give them a room because they were so young. Then several days later, employees of a department store... I'm not seeing these girls doing anything like this. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of... These are kind of like what we talked about in some other episodes. Like maybe they look familiar or they have mm-hmm. like familiar characteristics. They look like enough people that they're kind of mistaken for other people, you know? Mm-hmm. Several days later, employees of a department store would go on to report seeing the Grimes sisters in their store listening to Elvis Presley records, which sounds like them. But again, sounds like probably every teen in 1956. True. So not you know, anything outstanding. Mm -hmm. Most mysteriously, though, about two weeks after the girls disappeared, a classmate of Patricia's claims that she received two puzzling phone calls near midnight. She says during the first phone call, the party on the other line was just silent, which creeps me out. Mm -hmm. She says during the next phone call, a voice that she was sure was Patricia's said, Is that you, Sandra? Is Sandra there? Then the caller just hung up. What? Yeah. That is bizarre. So weird. But again, like, I think people's voices on phones sound different. And like, yeah, I'm like, I'm mistaken for a kid all the time when I answer my work phone at school. <laughs> They'll be like, is Miss Dameron in the room? Like, I am Miss Dameron. Thank you, right. though. I'll help you. <laughs> so maybe it's just, like, that kind of instance that right. they kind of sound the same. Yeah. The fate of the Grimes sisters would become known soon enough, though, Allison. And sadly, it's not what anyone in the town wanted to hear. On January 22nd, 1957... Following a thaw in the recent snow, nearly one month after the sisters were last seen alive, they were found in a ravine off County Line Road in Willow Springs by a construction oh. worker. Yeah. So, this construction worker, Leonard, why was that so hard for me to say? Prescott, um, like, says that he's, like, driving by and... That he sees, like, these things that are flesh-colored. He actually says, quote, these flesh-colored things, like, behind a guardrail. Mm -hmm. So, he's initially like, all right, these must just be mannequins. And so, for some reason, this makes no sense to me. He decides he needs to go home to get his wife to, like, (laughs) make sure these are mannequins by the road. Maybe, I guess he just didn't want to go by himself, which I guess I can understand. Can we pause here, too? Like, oh, I totally get that. Like, not wanting to go, I wouldn't want to go by myself. But 
You know, people always assume it's mannequins. How many times have you ever seen a mannequin outside of a store? Because I never have. Like, not once. And how many of these stories has it turned out to be a mannequin? Never. Zero. (laughs) So Yeah. If you think it's a mannequin, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. If you think it's a mannequin, it's a dead body. So there's that. Yeah. So he does bring his wife back and they do not find mannequins. They find the naked bodies of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. And it looks to them that they have either been just like dumped there or literally like thrown by a passing car. Oh. And the bodies not like really the position of the bodies but like the condition of the bodies are kind Mm -hmm. of peculiar so what makes them think that they were just sort of tossed from the car is that they're on like this kind of like flat section like right behind the guardrail and it's Mm -hmm. just about like 10 feet before you get to this like the bank of a creek right okay and they say that barbara is like laying on her left side with her legs kind of drawn up towards her torso, almost like she's in the fetal position. Mm-hmm. So not some way that you would like, I mean, if not some way that I would imagine a murderer would lay a body right. if they're right. carefully laying them out. Patricia was on her back with her body, like covering her sister's head. And like mm-hmm. her head was like at a sharp right angle. So again, mm-hmm. like not, indicative that they were just placed there but more just kind of like tossed right so it's believed that the sisters had most likely been driven to this location in a car and then their bodies were dragged or thrown out of the vehicle and placed Mm. behind the guardrail Mm. so three wounds and this is just like turns my stomach resembling like those typically inflicted by ice picks <gasps> were discovered on Barbara's chest and injuries like resembling blunt force trauma were visible on her face and head. Oh my God. But they're saying a lot of in- investigators say that that could have just been a result of how the bodies were placed where they were placed. Maybe mm. not necessarily like, how they died oh there were also numerous injuries resembling bruises along patricia's face and body and i read that they actually which i thought this was weird but i read um that the girl's father joseph was actually driven to the crime scene to identify (gasps) the bodies not to like a lab or a morgue yeah oh which i thought was kind of weird that is so he does identify that them as Patricia and Barbara and immediate immediately police change gears from like the missing persons train mm-hmm. to they're now looking for a suspect in the murders of the Grimes sisters. Yeah. What complicates things is the autopsy pathologist and the chief investigator of the coroner's office are unable to agree upon a time of death and a cause of death. So it makes it difficult to kind of begin an investigation looking for a suspect, not knowing when or how they died. Yeah. So the autopsy report says that there were no obvious fatal wounds discovered on the girl's body. So I'm assuming the ice pick things were not very deep. Okay. Neither had been drunk. Neither had any drugs in their system. Um, And even though there were no clothing belonging to the girls at the scene of the crime, and those clothes have never been found, the bodies were described to be as, quote-unquote, markedly clean on the autopsy report. Hmm. So, obviously, clothes are out there somewhere. Yeah. So, somewhere, somebody has some evidence. Or they did at one point. Hmm. I did read that there were like sores and cuts on the girls, but some people said that that was like rodents. Like they had been laying there for a while and rodents had done that. Um, Mm -hmm. But we're going to talk about some other possible theories uh, like regarding that. Okay. 
So, strangely, Allison, the autopsy would report that Barbara, so the oldest of the two, the 15-year-old, had engaged in sexual intercourse. And the autopsy report said either consensually or unconsensually. Like, that's literally the only two ways you can have sex. But Right. Okay. And I feel like you should be able to tell which way it was. Yeah. But I would think so, too. They say that she had sexual intercourse around the time of her death. The official cause of death that I read was murder. And then it also listed secondary shock. So like, I guess, frigid temperature. So I took that. Yeah. So I took that as like, maybe they had wounds that prevented them from like leaving and kind of died from hypothermia. That's how I take that. Right. Hmm. I cited it in an article from the Victorian Advocate called Two Chicago Girls Found Cruelly Slain. One of the people that performed the autopsy, Walter McCarran, said that the sisters' bodies had lain, were like undiscovered behind this guardrail for many days before their eventual discovery. So he says that the bodies are preserved so well because there have been frigid temperatures in the weeks prior to January the 22nd. And there had been, like, a lot of snowfall at that time. So, he's saying that's kind of what preserved Mm. their bodies. He concluded that the girls were there for more than three weeks. Oh, gosh. Because they're missing, like, you know, right around a month. And he says they were there for about three weeks. Um, because the snow started falling around January the 9th, and because it melted, that's how they the girls were discovered. So he's saying that they had oh. to be there when the snow started falling, so it, they sh- should have been there a few weeks. But I still feel like, I don't know if they could have been there initially, too, because then there's still like a week there, you know, a little over a week before the mm-hmm. snow starts coming. Yeah, and that's a point that a lot of people bring up. And there is one Cook County Coroner officer, Harry Gloss, that completely disagrees with, like, the official time of death and, like, cause of death. So he Mm -hmm. stated to the media that there were numerous marks of violence on the girls' faces. So he's saying that... This was not like a rodent problem, like a post-mortem mm. rodent problem. This was like signs of like abuse. Yeah. Violence. So Gloss, yeah, violence. Gloss says that he believes the girls were alive until at least January the 7th. Mm-hmm. So since this is, that's the only day he says that would like makes sense because of like the snowfall that we've Mm -hmm. talked about Mm -hmm. and he says that there had to have been like a sufficient snowfall to react with the girls natural body heats in the climate because there was a layer of ice discovered on their bodies when they were like first discovered by police so it melted and then froze on them as their body temperatures cooled Right, so he's saying that their bodies had to be warm when they were placed there. And since only after January 7th had there been sufficient snow to create this layer of ice on the bodies. I'm with Gloss. I agree. Yeah, his theories to me make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So, like, in addition to that, he states that both girls were subject to sexual assault during their period of captivity. So he's saying that the sexual intercourse with Barbara was not consensual, Mm -hmm. that it was assault. And he adds that the autopsy conducted on Patricia notes that there was semen discovered within her vaginal Mm -hmm. fluid that was swabbed from her body. Mm -hmm. And how did they miss it the first time? Well, I mean, I know we have two conflicting accounts. I'm, and I'm automatically believing this guy because I believe his other part of his theory. But. So a lot of people say, And I talk about it, like, here in a little bit. But a lot of people say that, like, again, like, this is a different time period. So, like, I think of, like, lamb to the slaughter, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you're kind of 
women are viewed like as somebody that needs protected and like, you know, they're fragile and stuff like that. So a lot of people said that a lot of the facts of the case were Mm -hmm. kind of misconstrued to sort of protect the honor of Barbara and Patricia and in turn their mom, Loretta. Hmm. Which yeah. actually does the opposite because it hurts the investigation by not getting the details out, in my opinion. Right, exactly. So he, like I said, says they're both sexually assaulted. He also goes on to say that um, milk was found in Barbara's stomach, curdled milk. And there was no evidence that she drank milk at home like the day mm. they disappeared or at the cinema because what movie theater is like get right. your glass of ice cold milk with your milk duds uh, and popcorn no, coca-cola yeah coca-cola <laughs> so uh, she so they think that she's had to consume food from mm-hmm. the time she left the movie theater to when they're found he goes on to say that the wound marks on the girls' bodies weren't adequately investigated or really considered. And he says that those wound marks kind of point to the fact that the girls had been beaten prior to being murdered. Mm. And this is where I said, like, um, Gloss says that he thinks a lot of details in the case were kind of, like, watered down. Mm-hmm. So as to not hurt the girl's reputations or spare the feelings of the mom. Mm. And we would actually, like, a lot of people have said that over the years. Like, it's not just been him. There were several people who were interviewed in the McKinley Park area, so where the girls lived, um, that said the those two girls spent a lot of their free time outside a bar on 36th Street and Archer Avenue, which if one of the sightings was correct, they were seen walking on Archer Avenue. Um, and there they were, they would regularly pursue older men to purchase them alcoholic beverages. So they're thinking like, maybe that is the case here as well. Mm. And actually Gloss would go on to be fired by the coroner because he refused to recant his statements. Oh, Yeah, and he, in turn, would be deputized by the sheriff who actually concurred with his conclusions that the girls had been beaten and tortured by a sexual predator who kind of lured them into his vehicle, like, after the movie. Wow. So, we've kind of talked about potential sightings, the, like, potential causes of death, and now we're going to talk about possible suspects, and there are a few. Okay. And all of them, in my opinion, are just, like, to me, none of them are like, this is the one. Okay. This person killed them. So first up, we're going to talk about Edward Bedwell. He -hmm. was a 21-year-old drifter from the state of Tennessee. He had been evicted from his home in November of 1956, and ended up in the weeks leading up to the Grimes sisters' disappearance, earning money as a dishwasher in a Chicago Skid Row restaurant. So he's there at the same the time area. that they disappeared. Yeah. Yes. And if you remember earlier, Allison, I talked about the girl supposedly got into a car with an Elvis lookalike. Mm-hmm. And Bedwell was an Elvis lookalike. Oh. According to his bosses, John and Mindy, so they owned the restaurant where he was a dishwasher. They say that he and another young man were at the restaurant in the company of two girls who resembled the Grimes sisters on December 30th. Did they drink milk? You know, I didn't read where it said, but that would kind of make sense. Because hmm. it is a restaurant. Right. Um. And they actually, so this couple, um, Edward's boss, Mm -hmm. would tell police about this interaction on January 24th. And police actually arrest Edward Bedwell. And he is interrogated for three days. What? Yeah. Which is insane to me. So he's interrogated. How can they arrest him, too, before they've questioned him? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, 
so initially he is like my boss is mistaken i was with girls but it was not the grime sisters it was someone else but on the 27th of january he's actually charged with the murders of the grime sisters mm-hmm. after he signed a 14 page confession in which he says that he and a 28 year old acquaintance named William Cole Willingham had been in the company of the Grime Sisters on the 30th. And he stated that they were together until January 7th. <gasps> January so, 7th. January 7th. Drinking in various like West Madison Street saloons. And according to Bedwell, after several days of the girls like wanting to be in their company, they're like the girls are tired they're like done with this kind of rebellious moment and they're like Mm -hmm. ready to go home he says that they feed them hot dogs which i think is extremely specific yeah and then the girls refuse their sexual advances and he and william cole willingham um, extensively beat the girls and then throw their nude bodies into a snow-filled ditch hmm so that's his initial confession, to which his the mother, Loretta Grimes, is quoted in saying, It's a lie. My girls wouldn't be on West Madison Street. They didn't even know where it was. Okay, which may be the truth, but, like, they could still be there. Like, I don't know where a lot of streets are in Lexington, but Anthony's right. like, Hey, we're going to this restaurant on yeah. blah, blah, blah Street. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, let's go. And that seems an odd reaction to me. Like, just speaking you know personally because she didn't say oh that's a lie they wouldn't have you know gotten into a car with older men right she didn't say that was a lie they wouldn't have been drinking alcohol right she's like oh they wouldn't have been there they don't even know where that is yeah that's an odd reaction to me yeah agree so this William Cole Willingham would deny being with the Grimes sisters during that time. He's like, me and Bedwell were with two girls, but they were not the Grimes sisters. It was two other girls. And Bedwell would go on to recant his statement, saying that it was basically a forced confession. Like, mm-hmm. he was just held there for several days, and he was like, yeah, I did it. And they actually ended up releasing him. I mean, we've seen that a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, and autopsy reports kind of back up Bedwell's innocence in this case, but Mm -hmm. um, the detective gloss would continue to hold to the theory that Bedwell was responsible for the murders of the Grimes sisters. Um, So in the autopsy report, there was milk in the stomachs. There were no hot dogs. Right. Um, The girls were, you know, had those wounds on them. But the autopsy said there was like no evidence of like basically beating them to death. Yeah, because they couldn't even figure out a cause of death. Right. And they basically just said they must have like succumbed to the elements. Right. And we also have like Bedwell's time, like work card. Mm -hmm. It was stamped. That he went into work at around like 4.20 p.m. on the 28th and then was at work and clocked out at 12.30 a.m. on the 29th. So, like, the time that the sisters would have likely been abducted would have been like around 11.05-ish. Oh. And he yeah. would have been at work. Right. But what's weird is the same year that he's acquitted of this, he's also tried and later acquitted of a 1956 rape of a 13-year-old girl in Florida. What? So, like, similar enough to kind of make me... Yeah. They could see him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's suspicious. And he actually died in November 1972, so we really won't know. But then I guess if we had semen in a vaginal swab, Mm -hmm. like, we would not be able to do DNA, and I didn't read anywhere where that had happened. Hmm. So our second suspect is Max Flag, and so I'm going to call him Max because I don't know the flag is too hard to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, according to Medium.com, Max was 17 year old, 17 years old when he was under suspicion for being the sister's murderer. Hmm. So I didn't know this, but. Due to his age, Illinois law at the time said that he was not allowed to take a polygraph test, I guess, because he's oh. underage. I didn't even know there was like an age limit. 
Yeah, I don't know if that's been over like changed since then, but at this time he couldn't hmm. take a polygraph test. However, I read that a police captain convinced him to take one anyway. Oh no, so, can't do that. Oh, he does. And he subsequently oh. confesses to the murders of both girls. But because the test was conducted illegally, right. he couldn't be charged. So it's kind of like if you don't read the Miranda rights, right. like, yeah, be released. So he was released due to a lack of evidence, but was later jailed for the murder of another young woman. Oh my gosh, all these suspects. Yeah, and... Loretta Grimes, so the mom, actually, like, said, like, she did not agree with the age restriction on polygraph test and, like, stood behind this police officer, like, kind of convincing him to take the polygraph. Hmm. Okay, the third suspect, also with a very odd last name, is suspected child killer Charles Melquist. Yeah. So, Charles (laughs) was... (laughs) Again, so many weird last names. I know. Charles was suspected by police because of a series of prank phone calls placed to Loretta Grime in both 1957 and 1959. <gasps> okay, so listen. So this guy is at least connected to the Grimes family. Yeah, and you're going to say, oh, wow, this is even more of a connection when I tell you this next part. Okay. So... Loretta got a phone call from an unknown caller who said that he was the one who undressed the girls, which <gasps> is creepy. Uh... Then, then it, gets, it gets worse. 18 months later, on the same night that the newspaper would report the discovery of Bonnie Lee Scott. Now, she was another underage girl who was found naked in a wooded area not far from where the Grimes sisters were found and, like, died under similar circumstances, they believe. Okay. So the same night the newspaper reports that Bonnie has been found, Loretta Grimes receives a phone call from someone with a similar voice as the person who claimed to undress the girls that says, quote, he got away with another one. (gasps) This is him. This is a guy. So, How could it not be? Maggie, said. you said there's no clear one. Oh, no. Because then I also keep going back to Bedwell. And in the phone conversation that the uh, he got away with another one guy says, um, he also says that the police will not be able to pin it on Bedwell or any other suspect in the case. Hmm. So... What I'm going to tell you, I think you're going to even more think that it's this Charles Melquist. Okay. Because according to the Columbia Chronicle, Charles, who is now dead, was never charged with killing the Grimes sisters. But he did confess to killing Bonnie Lee Scott in 1958. So that mm. makes me think maybe it could be him. Because he's saying mm-hmm. right in the phone call to Loretta that he got away with another one, mm-hmm. meaning Bonnie. Yeah. You don't say so another maybe- one if that's the first one. Right, but a lot of people say, and this is pure rumor, first off, he only served like eight years of his 99-year sentence for murdering Scott. <gasps> and I don't eight know if years? Yeah, and I don't know if like he died in prison, so that's how his sentence oh. ended or what, because I didn't read his, like, when he died. But it is rumored that this man had connections to the lead investigator in the Grimes case, a Sheldon Teller and through Teller had connections to the mob mm, and his connections and to mob. the don't mess with yeah. them yeah and it's rumored that his connections with the Chicago mob could have been the reason that Charles was never charged with the Grimes sisters case mm-hmm. makes sense to me so next is Walter Kranz he was a 53-year-old steam fitter and self-proclaimed psychic. I oh, feel like goodness. we've had so many psychics in the last yeah. couple of episodes. Yeah. So he phoned the switchboard operator at the Chicago Central Police complaint room on January 15th to tell the operator that both sisters were deceased and that their bodies were going to be found in an area of Loins Township. 
So he refused at this time to disclose his name to the operator, simply stating that like he'd experienced this dream and that he needed to call in and just like ended the call. Hmm. So despite the fact he doesn't tell police what his name is, the operator is able to trace the call to his house. So like nope. we figure out who it is. So. You think if he's a psychic, he'd have figured that was coming, yeah. but, you know. So there's a plot hole for him. Right, right. The part described by him in this telephone call, though, was only about one mile away from where the girls' bodies were found just a week later. So when police question him, like, he says, oh, like, it's totally fine that I knew where they were going to be because, like, all of my family members and several of my ancestors have this psychic power and so, like, it's fine that I had this vision, and, like, this particular vision came to me when I was really shammered after a night yeah. of heavy drinking. Oh, my. Yes. Now, I'm not saying people can't have, like, premonitions or something yeah. like that, but I don't know. Yeah, I feel like maybe his was just, like, a drunken dream. Like, that's, yeah. that's what I feel like. Um, initially, he's considered by police to be one of their number one suspects in the murders. Um, because apparently, and I didn't read this anywhere else, but in this source, there was a handwritten note, like a ransom note, that was delivered to Loretta. And they say that Cran's handwriting sort of kind of matches the handwriting on this ransom note. But mm. he, like, adamantly denies any involvement in their abduction or murder and is subject to multiple interrogations, but is released and never, like, charged with anything. Hmm. So, two, like, very, no, one, just, like, very kind of off-the-topic theory, mm -hmm. like, theory was presented in A&E and it says that in this theory the sisters died after a, a liaison with teenage boys from a local gang who they got a ride from and then like the boys abandoned the two so a local man told police that Barbara was talking to like these young guys in a car as Patricia watched the night that they went missing and that the man overheard one of the boys tell Barbara you'll be sorry hmm so, that's it on suspects. Allison, what are you feeling? Okay, so I'm kind of torn between my head and my heart because mm -hmm. in my heart, I'm thinking, I keep going back to like the Elvis lookalike and so many different people saw the girls talking to somebody in a car Mm -hmm. That my heart feels like it could be this last theory, even though it was so brief, that there yeah. were, like, teenage boys, local ones, you know, uh, maybe who they felt more comfortable with. Or could the, like, teenage boys have been Bedwell and Willingham. Right. And maybe this is one and the same. Yeah. I mean, it could be. Because like, Bedwell was only 21. Yeah. Yeah. And I like 12 and I'm 30, so. Yeah. Um, And then, but my head keeps going back to the child killer, Charles Melquist. Like that, because we know he was calling Loretta, right? Like we know he's calling her. And he admitted to Bonnie Scott's murder mm -hmm. and was convicted for it. And the fact that he said, got away with another one. Yes. So I'm, I think I'm going to have to go with Melquist. All right, Sleuth Hounds, you let us know what you guys think. As we approach the holiday season, it's our hope here at Coffee and Cases that you carry stories like that of Barbara and Patricia Grimes with you. As you sit down for Thanksgiving dinner with your family or as you gather by the fireside to read the Christmas story, we hope that you remember how blessed you truly are. Not everyone has the luxury of having their loved ones close by. So smile as you remember the good times you've had with your family over the years and pray for those families that aren't so lucky. Pray for the ones who had to say goodbye too soon. As summer comes to a close, let's keep talking about the Grimes sisters and all of our unsolved cases. 
Let's keep them in our thoughts as the days pass, because hopefully by sharing these stories, their days as being labeled unsolved will come to an end. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.